I'll make a few announcements, but we'll be looking at page 12, if you want to turn to page 12 in your notes. And here's uh, some stuff that's coming up. This evening at 6 o'clock is our annual Christmas, uh, Adult Christmas Fellowship. So it is uh, adults only, and we always have a great time of, of fellowship and uh, gag gifts for our Adult Christmas Fellowship. And here's how it goes. As listed in your program, uh, it says that uh, we meet tonight at 5 o'clock at the Allen Park Community Center, and we'll go for about two, two and a half hours so that you know if you have kids, you can have an approximate time that you could be getting them. And we ask you, well, I don't know, what's it say? They'll just say, okay. But if you show up at five, it'll be fine. You can go. But it's six. Thank you. Yeah, so we go, we go for a couple hours, so forget everything else I said. <laughs> but six o'clock, thank you. Tonight at the Allen Park Community Center. And in the uh, program... Now where, it also, where it tells you the correct time, it also tells you what to bring. And we divide up what to bring by your last name. So A through L brings uh, desserts, I think, and then beverages are uh, M through Z. But we ask everybody to bring an appetizer. So you're really bringing two items. You bring an appetizer plus a dessert or beverage, depending on your last name. The other thing is we have a white elephant gift exchange. And the white elephant gift is a kind of a gag gift uh, that uh, might get a rise out of everybody when it's uh, unwrapped. So it's something you probably don't want. Uh, make sure it's not something that someone in the church gave you uh, last year. <laughs> and then it shows up at the white elephant. That's always bad. And you wrap it, and you don't put your name on it. So uh, a white elephant gift, inexpensive, by the way. In fact, for most of these gifts, you don't... You, know, you find it in a garage or something like that. You don't pay anything for it. So a white elephant gift, one for each person. So if you're coming as a couple, each of you bring one, wrap it. Don't put your name on it. But at the end of our exchange, we do go around the room and we identify who brought what. So we like to tell you that in case you bring something that you don't want to be identified with, you, you will be identified. Okay. So that's tonight at 6 o'clock at the Allen Park Community Center. And we hope you all will be able to, to come for that. Then the next two weeks are the holidays. Christmas and New Year's fall on Sunday this year. And because of that, we're not having uh, the two hours, two and a half hours we normally have on Sunday morning, those two days. We're having the one hour at 11 o'clock in this room. So we will have just our worship service on those two days. None of our educational uh, uh, classes going Sunday school. We'll have uh, nursery and toddlers for the littlest ones and then everybody else will be in here, okay? So next uh, Sunday, Christmas, 11 o'clock in this room, the following Sunday, New Year's Day, 11 o'clock in this room, and then we'll get back to the regular routine the, uh, the following week. We're going to start a new series in this hour, the 11 o'clock hour on Sundays, uh, on January 22nd, called uh, The Gospel-Centered Life, and that's listed in your program as well. So just... Uh, Make plans to be here. Make plans perhaps to invite someone because it will go through the full implications of the gospel for, for how we live. And so it's going to be helpful to me, I hope to you, and be helpful to others as, as well. Okay? The gospel-centered life starts January 22nd. So we have a session on praying with your eyes open today. The next two weeks we don't have a session on anything, just the worship service. And then on January 8th and 15th, we will finish this series. So we have today and two more weeks in Praying With Your Eyes Open. January 22nd, we'll start the new series, The Gospel-Centered Life. Okay? Everybody good? 
tonight at uh, 6 o'clock, Allen Park uh, Community Center. All right, we left off last week on page 12 in your notes. And in this series, Praying With Your Eyes Open, we started the series in the very first session looking at starting our prayers in Jesus' name. And those of you who were here, who were here know what that's about, but briefly... The idea is that to pray as we do by Jesus' instruction, coming to the Father in my name, says Jesus, we pray in Jesus' name. And so many of us are in the habit, and it's a good habit, but it's a habit that, like all habits, sometimes we just do and we don't know why we do it. So we end our prayers in Jesus' name, amen. Now, that's a good thing to do, as I say. But we need to think about why it is that Jesus says to come in his name. And that is why in this very first session on praying with your eyes open, we looked at uh, what it means to do that. And praying in Jesus' name means that we are coming to the Father on the basis of Jesus' person and work. So when I pray in Jesus' name, I'm coming to the Father not on my own merits, not because I should have any access to the Father, As a sinful being, I should not, but I have it only because of the person and work of of Christ. And so starting our prayers in Jesus' name means that I'm aligning my, my prayers and the petitions in those prayers and the attitude with which I go to the Father with those prayers around Jesus' purposes in whose name I come. And so I start my prayers in Jesus' name in the sense, not that I necessarily start out, Father, in the name of Jesus, although you could do that. But, and you may not in your prayer say the words in the name of Jesus at all. It's not formulaic, but it is attitudinal. It is giving me direction and you direction on how it is and on what basis it is that I approach the Father with my prayers. So if you weren't here for that first session, I encourage you to go back and look at those first uh, four pages, I think it was, on, on starting our prayers in Jesus' name. That is, coming at the beginning of our prayers with the right approach to the Father because I'm coming not on my own merits and not to fulfill my own purposes, but to fulfill Jesus' purposes, okay? Then we saw not just uh, starting our prayers in Jesus' name, but then uh, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at offering our prayers in Jesus' way. And that looked at the disciples' prayer, the model prayer that Jesus gave to his, his first followers and by extension now to, to us. And we went through the six petitions that Jesus gives in that model prayer, six requests that he gives when he says, Pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Those are six requests. And those six requests fall into two categories. They are three requests that relate to the Father and three requests that relate to us, the family. And so the way we had it outlined for you was we approach the Father by uh, talking to the Father about the Father about uh, his kingdom and, uh, and his will and his holiness. And then we talk to the Father about the family, about our bread and about our forgiveness and about our spiritual protection, delivering us from the evil one. And that's the proper priority that we should have in our prayers. If we're coming in Jesus' name and we're aligning our prayers with Jesus' purposes, then we're thinking first about what matters to God 
And so we're thinking about the holy name of God being magnified in his world. And we're thinking about the kingdom of God coming and his, his righteousness being established throughout his world and his will being done now on, in his world as it is now in, in heaven. So we come with that mindset. And prioritizing our prayers with, with his purposes, it is then legitimate and right for us to come to him with our requests as well. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins and uh, deliver us from the evil one. So we've seen starting our prayers in Jesus' name and offering our prayers in Jesus' way. And then, beginning last week, we began to look at giving our prayers in the way that the Bible elsewhere describes how we're to approach him. On page 10, we call it conforming our prayers to Jesus' word. And so in the remaining weeks, today and the two weeks in January, the 8th and the 15th, we're going to look at the things that we have on page 10, that we are to approach God confidently. We saw that last week. Today now, spiritually, boldly, expectantly, persistently and righteously and wisely and forwardly. All right? And with that, page 12, we left off on page 12, looking at the fact that we should approach God in the name of Jesus spiritually. Sometimes I hear people say, you know, I would pray when we're in our small groups, home groups, our community groups, but I don't know what to say. Well, I have good news for you. The Bible says none of us know what to pray for. <laughs> Did you know that? The Bible actually says that none of us really knows how we ought to pray. If you look at the bottom of page 12 in italics there, just before that last paragraph, we have Romans 8, verses 26 through 28. The Spirit helps in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Now, most of the time, we quote Romans 8.28, that last piece there. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. We quote that without connecting it to verses 26 and 27. But verses 26 and 27 are saying that the Spirit knows what we should be asking for. The Spirit knows infinitely, exhaustively, what we should be asking for. We ask in our feeble, finite, limited way, from our own perspective, that can't see all of the connections and the implications of what's going on in God's world and in our lives. And so we say, Lord, we ask you to do this. And it may be a good and fine thing for us to ask, but it may not be best in the grand scheme. And the one who knows the grand scheme, the Bible is telling us, is the Spirit. And so the Spirit knows how to take your limited, finite, and wrong prayer. Because I'm asking for the wrong thing, and I'm asking for the wrong thing because I don't know what thing I should be asking for, and I don't know how it all fits. But He knows all of that. And He takes your feeble prayer and my feeble prayer and conforms it to the will of Jesus because he sees all. And then in that connection, and God works out everything 
for good. So the God to whom I'm going in prayer and who's adjusting my prayer according to, to his plan now is going to use that prayer and the circumstances that he has designed for our good and for his glory. And he connects all of that to our prayers. And that's why we say the Bible tells us to pray spiritually. And what I mean by that is to pray with the intercession of the Spirit, understanding that when I come to God, I'm too weak, too limited, too frail, too finite, to know what it is I ought to ask for, but God the Holy Spirit knows exactly what I need. And he intercedes on my behalf. That's what Romans 8, 26 through 28 are telling us. Now, look at the paragraphs just before that. Right under Roman numeral 2, middle of page 12. After Jesus retaught his disciples the model prayer, Jesus asked them a series of questions. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven... Let me just stop here. <laughs> you know, look at what he says. You know, you, you ask for an egg, are you going to get a scorpion? So, and none of you earthly fathers would do that. So how much more is your father going to give you the stuff you need? If you guys know to give the stuff you need and not give things that might be harmful, then how much more will I give you the stuff? That's why we might expect. But Jesus says, this is what he actually says. How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? What? What's the Holy Spirit got to do with this? Thank you very much. The reason that he, he says that is because of what we read in Romans chapter, chapter 8. We don't know what to ask for, but the best thing that the Father can give us, the best person the Father can give us, is the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, who knows all and then knows how to translate, interpret our prayers into precisely what we need. So if you look at the bottom of page 12, the Holy Spirit groans with urgency and affection that's beyond our ability to muster, urging the Heavenly Father to fashion all things for the good of his children. The Spirit becomes Christ's instrument of intercession for us. He pleads for God to order the temporal world for our eternal good. Now you just got to read that sentence and just take a breath. Order the world 
for our good. And he knows exactly how the world needs to be ordered in order to achieve that good. And because our triune God cannot deny himself, the Father must respond to the near and dear cries of the Spirit. Now think about that. God the Spirit is making intercession to God the Father. As we're going to see, God the Son is involved as well. And there is no way that God can deny himself, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all involved in this. And therefore, whatever the Spirit asks, whatever the Son asks, it will be done. But he knows what to ask for. To order the world precisely as it needs to be for our eternal good. The Father makes the last sentence there, all creation bow to our good in response to the pleading of the Spirit. Just read that slowly again. The Father makes all creation bow to our good in response to the pleading of the Spirit. Now this is not name it and claim it. This is not, God, I believe this thing is for my good, therefore you have to do it. Quite the opposite. The Bible is saying you don't know often what's for your own good. And because you don't, I, God the Spirit, will translate, interpret what you're asking for, plugging it into the grand scheme of all that God is doing in his world so that you receive precisely what is for your eternal good. The Father makes all creation bow to our good in response to the pleading of the Spirit. Now, in Romans chapter 8, I keep wanting to walk around. I have to stay here. Romans chapter 8, the word groan is used for three things. It says in Romans 8, 26 through 28, that the Spirit groans on our behalf. But Romans 8 also says... The creation groans. It uses the same word. The creation groans and, is, and is, is waiting, anticipating to be liberated from its bondage to decay, Romans 8 says. That will happen when God refashions the heaven and the earth, when the sons of God are revealed, the children of God are revealed. That's what it says. But meanwhile, nature itself is groaning under the effects of the fall. But it's anticipating and, and, and waiting and, and urgently desiring that this transformation take place. And then there's a second way that groaning is used in Romans 8. It's used of a woman giving birth. And it says that she groans in the, in the pains of childbirth. Now, now, what is that groaning? Again, anticipation. And urgently desiring a transformation. Of the, of the situation, the birth of the child, the end of the pain, creation groans, a, a, an expectant mother delivering a child groans. And then it says, and the Holy Spirit groans on our behalf. What's that mean? The Holy Spirit has an urgency, an anticipation, a, an intense desire to see happen what he brings to the Father on our behalf. What a marvelous thing. And what the Spirit urgently 
and in an anticipatory way desires, intensely desiring to see happen, brings before the Father, is precisely what happens. And so the Bible tells us to pray according <clears throat> to Jesus' word, which means pray confidently, as we saw last week, and to pray spiritually. And now if you'll take a look at page 13. The Bible tells us <clears throat> excuse me, to pray boldly. The Spirit speaks only what he hears from Jesus. And this is the same Spirit who groans before the Heavenly Father for us when we pray. Now here's the implication of that. Through the Spirit, we make requests to the Father with Christ himself speaking for us. The Father answers whatever we ask in Jesus' name because our Savior, God's Son, makes our appeal. We pray, but another prays for us. We approach the Heavenly Father, but His Son intercedes. We speak to the King of the universe, but the Prince of Heaven speaks on our behalf. Therefore, we can be very bold, not because we deserve to be heard, but because the one who speaks to the Father for us provides us the privileges and power of his identity when we pray. So when I approach God, I'm coming in Jesus' name. I'm coming with all of the identity of the unique Son of God in whom I am with in union, the Bible teaches. And he has given his privileges and his identity to me and to you. And so when I pray now, the Father is listening to my prayer and hearing my prayer as the prayer of Jesus. Conformed to the will of God by the Spirit. Now, the Bible says the Spirit groans on our behalf in words that cannot be uttered. And then here we're saying, in the middle of that first paragraph, third line, through the Spirit we petition the Father with Christ himself, notice this, speaking for us. So here's my understanding. The Spirit takes our requests and conforms them to what they should be, to the Son. And the Son speaks those requests on our behalf, to the Father. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit, all working on behalf of his children. Now, why is that? How is it that I have this identity of Jesus so that because I'm in union with Christ, I can be treated as this cherished child of God when I come before the Father? That's what the next couple of paragraphs are about on page 13. The Apostle Paul tells us that through faith in Christ, God makes us new creatures. We were spiritually dead, but now the Holy Spirit gives us spiritual, spiritual life, regenerating our hearts, reorienting our affections, and renewing our wills. The Spirit transforms us so profoundly that Paul says in the Bible, we no longer live, Christ lives in us. Our identity as sinful creatures alienated from the Father has forever been eclipsed by our union with the Son He loves. We are now in Christ at the same time that He's in us. Through this ongoing union, Jesus provides His righteousness for our strength, His strength for our weakness, His relationship with the Father to replace our alienation. We're the same physical people we always were. We still have the same personalities, though they are being set apart or sanctified, changed. We continue to struggle with weaknesses and fears, but we have a new nature. 
This new nature possesses spiritual life and is being transformed by Christ's spirit in us so that we're increasingly Christ-like. In our old nature, we were decaying spiritually like dead flesh that can only rot away. In our new nature, we're constantly being renewed like a living body that's always being restored. Because Christ is the one living in us and restoring us, we're becoming more than we were in our old nature, becoming more and more like him. At the same time, he's giving us eternal life with him. In addition, now please note, even before we have Christ's perfection, he shares his identity with us. I'm still in my struggling sinful flesh, and even before I'm glorified as I one day will be, and I will be completely like Jesus, but even before that, he shares with us both his life and his holiness. And as a result, heaven now receives our prayers on the basis of our having the status of the Father's beloved Son with whom we're united. Now, how can we illustrate how that works? And that's what you have at the bottom of page 13, an illustration of how that works from our judicial system. Second line, military personnel are occasionally sued by outside parties for something they did in serving our nation. In such cases, the name of the individual responsible for the problem does not appear on the docket. Rather, the name of the individual's military branch is entered. The military represents the soldier. And so as a result, the case is always Graham Company versus United States Army or Pete Company versus United States Marines. It's not Graham Company versus Private Jones or Pete Corporation versus Sergeant Smith. The individual still testifies, but he speaks to the court with the identity and the resources of the branch of the military to which he's united. When we pray, we speak as the person we are, but the Savior to whom we're united represents us in heaven. The Father hears our prayers not as the petitions of the fault-ridden persons that we are, but as the pleas of the infinitely holy and eternally loved Son, our Savior, Jesus. So you say, I don't know what to pray for. And Jesus says, don't worry about it. I've got it covered. I know you don't know what to pray for. I know you're weak. I know you're sinful. I know you don't see the whole picture. I know you don't know what to ask for. And so I have given you the Holy Spirit. I have sent the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to make intercession for you. He's going to translate your prayer into what you need. He's giving that to me, and I'm going to speak to the Father on your behalf. And the Father always, always hears me. And the Father always responds to me as his unique, dearly beloved Son. And therefore, you will always have what is asked in my name. Thanks be to God. Now, one question this raises for me, then, is, well, why does God want me to pray? I mean, if I'm, if I'm too out of it to know what to pray, if I'm too finite and limited that I, I don't know what I should pray for, and it has to be translated, and, and I can only go to God on the basis of, of another, then why does God want me to, to pray at all? 
Remember the spirit that he has poured out into our hearts? Do you remember the, what the Bible says, the effect of us having come to God and him having given us his spirit is? We're adopted into his family, and we cry out. Do you remember what we cry out? Abba, Father. And so what God is doing in us is teaching us by our prayers to learn to live as his children. To learn to come to him and cry out to him, Abba, Father. You're, as we saw in the Lord's Prayer, you're our daddy. Not in a flippant way, our daddy in heaven. But with whom we have this intimate, loving relationship. And God wants us to come, not because we know what we're supposed to ask. He's told us we don't. Not because we even know what's best for us. But because he wants us to learn to live as the children that we are. And so the Spirit prompts us to cry out, Abba, Father. Now that's precisely what Jesus achieved at Christmas. In dying for us, and uniting us to his life and his death, he gives us his spirit, whereby we cry out, Abba, Father. Now, where does the Bible say that? If you have your Bible, I want you to turn there. If you don't, just write it down and listen as I read. Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. And I'd like to just take a little bit to go through what Galatians 4 says about the purpose for Christmas and the result in giving us the Father, whereby, the, the Spirit, whereby we cry out, Abba, Father. Galatians 4 and verse 4. When the time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law. Now we're going to read on in a moment. But Galatians 4 and 5 says, When the time had fully come, God sent his son. Here's what that's saying. When the time was precisely right on earth, for God the Son to come and carry out the mission that he had submitted to carry out in eternity past. <laughs> Do you remember in Ephesians 1? that God had predestined that we be adopted into his family and that in the eternal counsels of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, there's an agreement between a plan to carry out the salvation, the deliverance, the rescue of people that he would come to redeem. And Jesus submitted to the plan of the Father to be the sacrifice for sin that would allow us to come into his family. When it says when the time had fully come then, the plan that God had determined in eternity past now was ripe for execution. And God sent his son when the time was just right. Now what made the time just right? God had orchestrated for centuries, millennia, to prepare the world for just the right time. God had prepared the world politically through the Roman Empire. They had created a, a road system that allowed guys like the Apostle Paul 
to carry the message of Jesus throughout the world. Some of those roads that they made were so good that you can still see pieces of them. They, they created a road system. They had a military that was, that was flung all over the world, and some of them came to Christ. And then when they were in the far reaches at their outposts, they witnessed to other, other soldiers. Gave a legal system, did Rome. Such that when Paul went on his missionary journeys to spread the message of Jesus, he was able to appeal to Caesar. You all remember that? Because he had rights as a Roman citizen. God prepared the world and all that was happening and orchestrating just the right time included political preparation, the Roman Empire. Remember Luke 2? It says that Caesar Augustus issued a decree that all the world should be taxed. Who's Caesar Augustus? The emperor, the Roman emperor. <laughs> and he doesn't realize he's doing God's bidding just at God's time. God prepared the world politically. He prepared the world culturally through the Greek culture into which Jesus came. Even though Rome ruled politically, Greece ruled culturally. And they gave philosophy, wisdom, but it was man's wisdom. Wisdom that left people dry and, 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 and wanting something more. And you remember when Paul preached, he would often appeal to the emptiness and the foolishness of man's wisdom. But the preaching of the cross is, is foolishness, he says, in 1 Corinthians 1. But to us it is the wisdom of God. Prepared the world culturally through Greece and Greek culture by giving, giving a common writing a common language that everybody used. And that language was Koine Greek, common Greek. And guess what your New Testament was written in? Koine Greek. God prepared the world politically and culturally, and he prepared the world religiously through Judaism, through the Old Testament sacrifices and the priesthood. And all of that was used by God to point to an ultimate sacrifice and an ultimate high priest. And there was an anticipation, a messianic anticipation at the time that Jesus came, looking for this long-promised one in the first part of your Bible. And when Galatians 4 says, when the time had fully come, that's a mouthful. Political and cultural and religious. And now I, God, have prepared this world for just the right time for my son to come. The Bible says in Luke 23, when Jesus was, was crucified, they put a plaque that said, this is the king of the Jews. And it says this was placed there in three languages, in Hebrew and in Greek and in Latin, representing the religious preparation, and the cultural preparation, and the political preparation. Galatians 4.4, 4, when the time had fully come, God sent his son. He sent his son who already existed. You get that? He didn't make his son. He sent his son. His son already existed. God the son has existed from all eternity past. And when the time on earth was just right now, God sent the son. In the miracle of Christmas, the incarnation, 
in his ultimate birth. And just as the Bible predicted in Isaiah chapter 7, he would be born of a virgin. A virgin shall conceive. And a miraculous birth produces this miraculous human being who is not just human, he is God. He's fully human and he's fully God. He is the God-man, Christ Jesus. When the time was just right, God sent his son. Now notice the next phrase in Galatians 4 and verse 4. Born of a woman, fully human, so that he could die as a substitute for the human race, so that he could live the life that Adam failed to live, and he could be called in 1 Corinthians 15, the last Adam. Jesus lived the life that we were supposed to live. He died the death that we deserved because he's fully human and could thus serve as our substitute in his life and in his death. God sent his son, born of a woman. The next phrase says, born under law. Jesus was born under the legal system of the Old Testament law. His parents obeyed that. You remember that when Jesus was born, they offered two pigeons as a sacrifice because that was the law's requirement for poor families. Our televangelist friends like to tell us that Jesus was rich. They, they claim that. Friends, Jesus was born into a poor family. That's why they offered the sacrifice of a poor family. Not two sheep. They didn't have sheep. Two pigeons. He's born under the law, and we find Jesus born, Luke 2, Matthew 1, this miraculous way, the angels announce it, and the Bible simply tells us in Luke chapter 2 and verse 52 that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature, and the next time we see him, he's 12. And where is he? He's at the temple, and he's schooling the elders. And Jesus is probably with his family in Jerusalem at age 12 for his bar mitzvah. See, bar mitzvot means this. Mitzvot means commandment. Bar means son. You remember Jesus saying, if you remember your King James, Simon bar Jonah? Remember that? It means Simon, son of Jonas. Bar means son. Bar mitzvot means you become a son of the law. And Jesus is in Jerusalem for his bar mitzvah, becoming a son of the law. Now, Jesus is born under the law, and what does Galatians 4.4 4 say? Here's why. So that he might redeem those under the law. It means that Jesus kept the law perfectly. He was born under the law, and he kept the law perfectly so that now he can redeem us release us from bondage to the law and its penalties because none of us has kept it. When the time was just right, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law that he might redeem those under law. And now look at Galatians 4 again. Verse 5, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Why does God want you to pray? 
even though you don't know how. Why does God still say, I want to use the means of your feeble, unknowing, finite prayers to accomplish my purposes in this world? Because one of my purposes in this world is that I would redeem a people for my very own who will be my sons and daughters, my special people, And I want you to learn to live as my children and to cry out to me as your father. And so I've given you my Holy Spirit who prompts you to say, Abba, Daddy. He'll translate it. He'll convert it into what it needs to be. And God will bend the events of human history to conform to the good of his children and the glory of God. Now, you're going to celebrate Christmas next week. When you celebrate Christmas next week, I encourage you to think of it that way. God the Son came at exactly the right time to redeem those that God had chosen. That's what Ephesians 1 said, those God had chosen to buy them out of the slave market of sin, to release them from the penalties of the law that they could not keep because of their sin, and to give them his spirit so that they are adopted into his family and in time, right now, they learn to live like it. So I would encourage you, when you start to open the presents next Sunday, to bow your head with your family and to thank the Father and thank the Son, and thank the Holy Spirit for the plan of redemption that you get to participate in. And it was inaugurated at Christmas when Jesus came at just the right time. Now, in three weeks, we'll look at page 14. The Bible tells us to to pray expectantly as well, and we'll continue our series, all right? Let's bow together.